You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. So the goal of this morning's sermon is the same goal for this entire series that we're doing in the month of May. It's that we want to have a renewed, clear focus on Jesus and what he has done. We want to have what Martin Lloyd-Jones has said is characteristic of revival. We want to glory in the cross and boast in the blood of Jesus. Now, we in ourselves cannot make revival happen because revival, unity, is an extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit. We can't make it happen, but we can, with the Spirit's help, do things that are necessary for revival to happen, like focus on Jesus and his gospel. And that's the point of this series and the point of today's sermon in Romans 5, verses 1 to 11. In this passage, there are just two basic parts I want to show you. Part one is the question, what is peace with God? And then part two is the question, how do we know it's real? Part one, what is peace with God? Part two, how do we know it's real? Let's pray again and we'll get started. Father, I want to just thank you in this moment for what Jesus has done for us. Thank you for Jesus that you sent him for us. Thank you that he has lived and died and raised from the dead for us. Thank you that he's coming again for us. And thank you that this morning in this moment, we get to open your word together and we get to see you. We get to recount your wondrous deeds. So I ask, show us your glory, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. So part one, two parts. Part one is the question, what is peace with God? So Romans chapter five, verses one to 11 is one of the most amazing chapters in all the Bible that introduces one of the most amazing sections in all the Bible. And this section starts here in chapter five and it runs all the way through the end of chapter eight, which Pastor Joe will preach for us next week. And if we're reading the book of Romans and we're tracking along with what Paul is saying, chapter five is kind of like a turning point in this book, it's a turning point in the argument that Paul has been making. And that's obvious, I think, here in chapter five, in verse one. Just look what Paul starts to say here in chapter five, verse one. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, which means that that Paul is about to say something new, right? That's a little sign there. Paul's gonna say something new, but what he's about to say is based upon what he's been arguing in chapters one to four. Paul has spent the first four chapters of this book explaining that every human being, Jew and Gentile, every human being is guilty of sin and deserving of God's judgment. That's chapters one and two. And the only way that any of us can be put right before God's eyes is by faith, not by works. That's Romans chapter three. Chapter three, verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. 
Chapter 3, verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And as an example of this, Paul says for us to consider Abraham. This is chapter 4. Abraham was declared righteous by God through his faith in God. And so the same goes for us. Righteousness will be counted to us who believe. So whoever you are, right, whoever you are, whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile, whoever receives Jesus by faith is put right with God. We are justified, justified. That's chapters one to four. But the question is, what's the point of our being justified? What is the result of our being justified? put right with God. Well, chapter five, verse one tells us here. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Everybody see that in verse one? Look look there at, at, at chapter five, verse one. That's the answer to the question. What does justification by faith get us? What is it? It gets us peace with God. Justification by faith gets us peace with God. And so we, we, we want to know what that means, right? Like if, if peace with God is what we Christians have, we have, we possess, we have peace with God, Don't you want to know what it means? I think even just the phrase, just the phrase, peace with God, that's intriguing, I think. I'm interested in that. My uh, my mom and dad were just in town visiting this past week, and I was talking with my dad about Romans 5 and talking with him about what Paul says here about peace with God. And my dad reminded me of some old tracks that he used to give out in the late 80s and early 90s. And uh, I remember these things because he used to have these in his pickup truck. There were these little blue rectangle tracks and the title of the track simply was Steps to Peace with God. And peace with God was real big on the cover. That was the track because we, we, look, we looked it up. I think it was published in like 1975, okay? Because over 40 years ago, the, the issue, the question of how to have peace with God sounded like something people wanted to know about, right? That was interesting to people 40 years ago. And I think it still is. I, I think, I'm, I'm convinced that this topic is something that people still want to know about, and, and if you don't think so, I want to encourage you just to ask around, okay? Your, your friend, your neighbor, your co-worker who doesn't know Jesus, just, just go up to him and ask him. Ask him the question, hey, are you interested in hearing about how to have peace with God? Just ask them and see what they say. Because this is still something that we as humans 
are intrigued by. We want to know about peace with God. It's what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about peace with God. So wherever it is that you're coming from this morning or whoever it is that you know coming from wherever they're coming from, I want you to know that peace with God is a real thing. Peace with God is possible and those who believe in Jesus have it. They have it, we have it. And so I wanna spend a lot of time explaining what it is. And I'll just be honest with you, when I started writing earlier last week, I did not expect to spend so much time on this question. But as I got into it, it became one of those things that I just could not move past, all right? So I'm gonna spend that half, more than a half now, of this sermon talking about what is peace with God. We have to know what Paul is talking about here. And so what I'd like to do is start with a long definition and then unpack it for you, okay? The question is, this is part one, the question is what is peace with God? Well, according to what Paul says here, Peace with God is the state of our relationship with God that includes a secure hope for the future that causes us to rightly boast in the present. And there are three parts to that definition I wanna highlight. The three parts are first, the state of our relationship. Number two, the secure hope we have for the future. And then this idea of rightly boasting in the present. First, let's look at this, the state of our relationship. When you hear the word peace in this passage, I want you to think relationship, relationship. Paul is not talking about a sentiment here. This is not peace as a sentiment, but this is peace as a state. This is about the state of our relationship with God. And the first thing that's implied here is that peace with God is the opposite of what our relationship with God used to be, right? Just, just, just think about it. Before we were put right with God, what were we? We were wrong with God, right? Paul, Paul is not describing a move here from neutral to righteousness. But before God declares us righteous in justification by faith, before we're declared righteous, we were unrighteous. Unrighteous. That's how Paul describes our condition in chapters one to four. We were sinners guilty to the core. We suppressed the truth of God. We exchanged the glory of God. We refused to honor God and give him thanks. And being unrighteous like that before the one true living and holy God of unspotted moral purity, the opposite of that Animosity, animosity is what we had. The opposite of peace is hostility and that's where we used to be. That's where we used to be with God. We used to be his enemies and that's where we all used to be. That's where we all used to be. Peace with God is a state that is different now. It's new, it's new from what we used to have. But then secondly, mainly here, we need to see that peace with God includes a secure hope for the future. 
Now, if we're looking closely at the passage, and we should, Paul wants us to know that peace with God has a future orientation. Look at verse 2. Through him, Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, the first first part of verse 2 here is just a restatement of what Paul says in verse 1. Peace with God is the grace in which we stand. It's a completely new realm of living. It's the same idea, I think, of eternal life, which is the Apostle John's favorite phrase. Paul is talking about our present reality that includes security about our future. Look at the second half of verse 2. Peace with God is not only the current realm of grace in which we stand, but also we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So we're standing here in this grace and we're looking forward. Our present peace includes certainty Our present peace includes the certainty that over time, our relationship with God will not diminish, but only deepen. And on the last day, we will not suffer God's wrath, but we will share in God's glory. Our current state of peace in our relationship with God requires that we know we will only have more of God in the future, never less. And that fact of our future is a big part of what makes our present reality actual peace. And we all understand how this works. We get how this, how this works. For example, if, if we knew right now, if we all knew that tomorrow something horrible was going to happen to us, it would dramatically affect the way that we act today, right? It would affect the way that we operate. We understand how this goes. So Melissa and I, we don't always do dessert, okay? But when we do, it's at our favorite restaurant because there's a dessert there that we really like. And every time we eat at this restaurant, uh, we have, we enjoy this dessert. And when it comes to that moment when we're, you know, contemplating whether to have it and we always end up having it on the little dessert menu at this restaurant, for those who are on the fence, there's a little quote at the top of the menu. And the little quote is meant to persuade you to by the dessert, the quote says this, quote, seize the moment. Remember all those women on the Titanic who waved off the dessert cart. (laughs) (laughs) And see, now that's meant to make you think, well then, yes, I will have the ice cream, right? But if you're like me, it actually just makes you think about all the people who died on the Titanic. (laughs) And you begin to wonder, did people eat dessert on the Titanic knowing what was about to happen? And then it just becomes this big uh, thought experiment. Use your imagination and you wonder, I mean, think about this for a second. Imagine 
that people on the Titanic, <laughs> and we're all thinking about Leonardo DiCaprio right now and Kate Winslet, you know. Ima- I mean, I do. I- imagine that they imagine that they knew this thing sinking. And imagine that they knew they were not going to survive. And imagine that after knowing all of that, they decide to seize the moment and have dessert. Imagine that. Now, if that were the case, if that happened, I can guarantee you that the dessert was not enjoyed. It wasn't. It wasn't. Because even in things like that, our present state of peace, if it's actual peace, it has to include some kind of security that what is coming next will not be worse. And Paul would say that the current state of our relationship with God consists in large part in that we know our future will be better. And that future that will be better is a future that we boast in now. Our secure hope for the future is what causes us to rightly boast in the present. So let's talk about boasting again. Peace with God means thoroughly we rightly boast in the present. I want you to notice now in verse 2 the word rejoice. That word rejoice is the same Greek word that's repeated three times in the passage. And so I want you to, I mean, I want you to see it. So look, at, look here with your Bible, with your eyes. I want you to circle verse, in verse 2 that word rejoice. Circle that word with your eyes. Now, if you're reading like me, that word rejoice is in verse 2. It's again in verse 3. It's again in verse 11 in the ESV. If you're reading the ESV like I do. Now, if you have the NIV in verses 2, 3, and 11, it goes, it goes boast, glory, boast. If you're reading in the NASB, that word is translated exult all three times. Now, each of these English translations are getting at the same idea, but the more literal word here is boast. So that's why I'm saying boasting. Okay, I'm saying boast, that's the word I'm using, because that's the way that this Greek word gets translated elsewhere in Paul's letters. The same word here in Romans 5 is the word we saw in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, when Paul said, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ. The word here for boast is also the same word that Paul uses earlier in chapter three, verse 17, when after Paul talks about justification by faith, he says, quote, what then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded, excluded. Which means there is one kind of boasting, one kind of rejoicing, one kind of exulting that is eliminated by the gospel. And that is boasting in ourselves. That is a, a kind of puff chest thinking that, that thinks that we, we, we are loved by God be, because we've done something to earn it. We think we've done something to win God's favor. This is the kind of hidden or stated way of thinking that says God is sure lucky to have me. 
And that's out there. That way of thinking has been obliterated by the way that God has designed our salvation. There is no rationale, none, for human boasting. In fact, in light of what God has done, to boast in ourselves is insanity. Okay, it's, it's insanity. And so we don't, we don't boast like that. We don't boast in ourselves. That kind of boasting is excluded. But another kind of boasting is important. In this entire passage, chapter five, verses one to 11, the only thing mentioned here about what we do is boast. If you look at the passage, everything that Paul says in these verses is about the action of God. Through and through, this is about what God has done. And our only part in this passage is the response of boasting in what God has done. We boast in what God has done now, which includes the hope of what he promises for the last day. It's that when your life in this world is over or this world as we know it is over, we will have God. We boast now in that. We boast in that future hope because that's, that's really the only thing that we have secure. Here's what I mean. You may right now be justified by faith. Right now in this room, you may be declared righteous by God. You may have peace with God right now. And right now, your life could be horrible. We have no security that it won't be here. So then the question is, what do we do about suffering, Paul? How does suffering fit into all of this? Well, Paul would say, we boast in suffering too. Look at verse three. He says, not only that, not only are we boasting in future hope, but we boast in our present sufferings. And I wanna just stop here to say, that if Paul stopped here, if this is all Paul says about boasting and suffering, it would be a ridiculous statement. You feel that? Think about, I think about PJ. PJ's a brother I went to college with who died this past Tuesday. A couple weeks ago, PJ started feeling, started feeling badly, didn't feel well. And he went to the ER and apparently, surprisingly, he was having a liver failure. And as he was at the hospital, things quickly worsened and all of his organs began to shut down and the, the doctors told him he had months and then suddenly one day they said, you got about two days left to live. He, P, PJ basically went from the ER to hospice care in his early 30s. 
And he did a video about it to tell people as an update what was, what was going on. And his friend shot a video for him. And in the video, he's, he's talking direct to camera and he's struggling to, to breathe. So the words are, are coming slowly. And in the video, he says, quote, they told me I only have a couple days left to live, which sucks. That's what he said. And he's right. That's horrible. That, in, in, in the snapshot of what he was experiencing, that's horrible. And you do not boast in that. Paul does not say we should boast in that. Look at verse three again. We don't boast in our sufferings in a snapshot. But verse three, we boast in our sufferings knowing. And this is one of the most important knowings in the whole Bible. We boast in our sufferings knowing that suffering serves a greater purpose. Suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces a hope that shall not put us to shame. And PJ knew that. In the hands of God's gracious care, suffering is a refining fire that strengthens our faith. We learn to press on and endure, and that shapes then our character. It leads us to real change in how we think and talk and live, and that generates hope because we know that although we're not yet who we will be, we're also not now who we used to be, and that's because God is at work in me, and the work that God began, the work that God is doing now is a work that he will bring to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, and that is the hope that we boast in. And see, suffering only deepens that hope. And so knowing that, we boast also in our sufferings. Not suffering in a snapshot, but we boast in our sufferings in light of the whole. We boast in our sufferings in light of the whole where we have this hope that one day we will be with God. And see, all of that, is peace with God. That's peace with God. Peace with God is the state of our relationship with God that includes a secure hope for the future that causes us to rightly boast in the present. That's part one. What is peace with God is all that, okay? Romans five. But how do we know it's real? How do we know that this peace with God will not put us to shame? How do we know our hope will not put us to shame? It will not be said on the last day that we made too big a deal about Jesus here. We will not come to that day and experience any kind of disappointment in the promises of God. And we can be sure about that now. How? Well, Paul here gives us in verses, one, uh, verses 5 to 11, he gives us three assurances. 
He gives us three assurances to the question, how do we know that this peace with God is not empty? Now, in particular, these assurances that he gives us, they're about our hope. But since our hope is so central to our state of peace with God, I think we should have the entire relationship of peace in view here. The whole state of our relationship with God and especially our hope is what Paul is speaking to. Three assurances, it's real. Number one, God has poured his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit at conversion. Assurance one. Now this is a tightly argued section, what Paul's doing here. Look what he says in verse five. Our hope, the hope that is central to our peace with God will not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is a reason for our hope being secure. And the reason is something that God has done in our hearts. We all have hearts, right? We believe we have hearts, we all have hearts. Now imagine that your heart, Christian, is like a cup. It's a cup, you have a a heart cup. Now imagine, Christian, that God, when he pours his love into your heart, imagine that God is literally pouring love into your heart cup. And he does that through the Holy Spirit that he has given to us. God's love is through the Holy Spirit. God's love is the Holy Spirit. And now when did God do that? When did God pour his love into our heart? This is a, grammatically here, a perfect passive indicative, which means this is something that has been done to us. When, when? I think Paul has in mind here conversion. He's talking about when we first believed in Jesus. He's talking about when we were born again by the Holy Spirit to put our faith in Jesus. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth and followed thee. That's what Paul's talking about. He's talking about conversion. Conversion is when God gave us the Holy Spirit as the guarantee or the down payment of our future with God. That's the way that Paul talks about the Holy Spirit in other places, like Ephesians chapter one, verse 14. Paul says that when we believe in Jesus, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it in the future to the praise of God's glory. And so if we put Ephesians 1 together here with Romans 5, we can say that the Holy Spirit is that kind of guarantee for us because he is the minister of God's love in our hearts, which we have contact with by experience. The Holy Spirit is the minister of God's love in our hearts. We experience that. Paul's describing something here that individuals experience, which means he's describing something that's subjective. And I realize that something so subjective may not sound like an assurance to you at all. It it might sound to you more like an anecdotal fallacy, which you can Google later or ask Pastor Joe. Pastor Joe. 
It might sound that way. We're talking about an experience here. But we just need to remember that although our contact with this love is our experience, this is still a real objective thing that God does. From God's perspective, he really is pouring his love into our heart cups because God is real and God does real things and God has a real Holy Spirit that he has given to us. And Paul says this is a rationale for why our hope is secure. And there's more. There's a second assurance for why our hope is secure. It's in verse six. Assurance number two, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. God shows his love for us by the fact that Jesus died for us. And notice the word for in verse six. This word for means that what Paul is saying here is a grounding to what Paul has just previously said. We're getting into layers here, okay? Verses six to eight are a reason for verse five. This grounds the fact that God's love has been poured into our hearts. How? Well, because while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, which is the kind of thing that doesn't happen. Dying for the ungodly, just think about this. It's extremely rare for someone to die for a righteous person. And there's no way ever that someone would die for a mere good person. And yet what did God do? God did something unlike anything you've ever heard of. Because God shows his love for us. God put his love for us on display in that while we were still sinners, not righteous people, not good people, but the worst kind of people. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that is an objective historical fact. Jesus is a real person and he died a real death on April 3rd, the year 33, just outside the city of Jerusalem. And his death, the death that he died, he died for you. His death, the death of Jesus is God showing you something. It's fascinating here that the verb, the verb show in verse eight is a present active indicative, which means that the death of Jesus continues to show. It's showing something. It means that the one-time historical event of Jesus' death is the present active message of what God thinks about you. Did you get that? The one-time historical event of Jesus' death is the present active message of what God thinks about you, and it's that he loves you. God shows right now, God shows right now that he loves you in the fact that Jesus really historically actually died for you. Now, there are many preachers in the world, pastors in the world, who preach without notes, okay? I am not one of them, all right? Just so we're clear. When I preach, I have certain things that I want to say in certain ways, 
And so I write them out and I consult them as I preach, just like I'm doing right now. See, that's what I'm. But when I was growing up, my pastor, he was a no notes guy, okay? And it was amazing, He's a, he is a very gifted man. <laughs> but one characteristic of preaching without notes every Sunday is that you can tend to come back to the same things over and over. You know, you kind of have your soapbox go-tos and in a moment when maybe you don't know exactly what to say next, you just default to saying the same thing, right? And so when you, when you preach without notes every Sunday, it means that you can just repeat the same thing every Sunday. And my pastor did that. He had one of those. He had a thing that he went to pretty much every Sunday, seemed like every Sunday. And it was, Rome, it was Romans 5, 7 to 8. And he would quote it in the King James Version. And the way he said it, he'd say verse 7 really fast every time. <laughs> and then he'd slow down on verse 8. Every Sunday. Scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would dare even to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. My pastor would say that all the time. And I am glad he did. Because what Paul says here is an active showing that is worthy of constant repeating. This is how it all fits together in the passage, okay? Track, track with me. The present active demonstration of God's love in the one-time historical event of Jesus' death verifies that God's got love, real love, to pour into our hearts, verse 5, which is another proof that our hope is secure, which means that our state of peace with God is legit. To put it more simply, how can we be sure that any of this is real? It's because God loves us and he proves, proves it in the death of Jesus. I got one more assurance, verse nine and 10. Assurance number three, God verifies our future salvation by having already done the harder thing. God verifies our future salvation by having already done the harder thing. Now, I want to leave most of what, be, what could be said here to next week's sermon because I know where Pastor Joe is planning to go. So, Joe, to help kind of set up your sermon next week, I just want to point out that the logic that Paul uses in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, is the same logic he uses here in Romans 5. Look at verse 9 first. Verse 9 says that because we have been justified by Jesus' blood, we will absolutely much more be saved by Jesus from the wrath of God on the future day of judgment. And we know this because of verse 10. Look at verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Paul is saying, look, he's saying, look, when we were, when we were God's enemies, 
which we all used to be, when we were ungodly sinners, God brought us into a relationship of peace with him by the death of his son. He did what was unheard of. God did that for his enemies. And if God treated his enemies that way, then there's no doubt that for us who are no longer his enemies, but now his children, for us who now have peace with God through Jesus Christ, then absolutely Jesus is going to save us on the last day. You get the logic? Our hope for the future is secure because God has already done the harder thing. God brought us into a relationship of peace by the death of his son when we were his enemies. And that's a lot harder than saving your beloved righteous children from wrath. So of course, of course, God will do that. Of course. God will save us on the last day. And we, we have no idea what this means. See Romans 8 next week. Our hope is secure. We have peace with God. And we could spend forever thinking about the layers of wonder here. We could just keep thinking and talking about this. But how do we respond? That's where we ask, that's what we ask now. How do we respond to this? I just want to close now where the passage closes in verse 11. Paul says, more than, <laughs> more than any of this. Man, I just spent a lot of time talking about that, right? Well, more than all that. More than everything that Paul has said in verses 1 to 10. More, more than boasting in the hope of our future salvation. More than boasting in the hope that we will be saved from wrath in the future. We boast in God. We boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Right now, we boast in God. God. We boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that boasting is what I invite us all to do now as we come to this table. If you're here this morning and you are justified by faith, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, then through Jesus, I invite you to boast in God with this bread and with this cup by eating the bread that represents the body of Jesus and by drinking the cup that represents the blood of Jesus, we eat and we drink remembering what God has done. We remember that we have a secure hope. We remember that we have peace with God and in remembering all of that, we boast in God. We boast in God. So I invite you Christian to do that now. The body of Jesus is the true bread. Let us serve you.